I'm Christian Chiller. Welcome to my podcast, an enthusiastic ramble through whatever has taken my interest the past week or so. Expect technology, games, history, travel, geekery, and as always, much, much more. Welcome to another Chinchilla Squeak with me, Chris Chinchilla. Back to interviews, clearing the backlog of the past few weeks. I'm actually squashing two vaguely related interviews into this episode from the Open Source Summit in Bilbao. And I'm going to be speaking with uh, no surnames in both these cases, with uh, Max from the Sustainability Tag Technical Advisory Group at the CNCF, and with Arpit, who heads up uh, the the Energy Linux Foundation groups, shall we say? We sort of dig into exactly what that means in the interview. But before all that, I actually do have quite a few very mostly related bits of news and links to go through. So let's jump into those first. This is something from Patrick Howell O'Neill over on MIT Technology Review about how the US military would like to understand the most important software on Earth. What might be that most important software on Earth, I hear you say? Well, it is the Linux kernel. And I think this is mostly from a security perspective when so much software and hardware is reliant on this piece of software. People who are reliant on it would sort of like to understand how it works. Should there ever be a need to to dig into that detail for protection reasons, for security reasons, etc., etc. And this has got uh, military and other security groups spooked, interested. I don't know quite what the right word is, because of course, being open source, it means that people can access the code and figure out ways to potentially exploit anything using it and not tell anybody because there is no one they have to tell if they're exploiting it in a in a black hat way i suppose so a lot of experts inside these organizations want to understand it better so they can identify those potential exploits themselves and i guess fix them before they are exploited for other people hopefully i mean hopefully they will give back to the community if they discover anything so I guess that's a hopefully overall positive, but it's hard to say right now, of course, and we will find out when we find out. This is all part of DARPA's Social Cyber, which is a rather strange name, program. 18 months long, which doesn't seem that much. Multi-million dollar, though. I don't know. That seems like a lot of money to get through in 18 months. Combining sociology, and the human is usually the weakest link, technology, AI-powered learning, of course, to map out all of these connections to the kernel and other projects that sort of connect to it to see what those potential vulnerabilities and exploits could be in the future. Interesting, maybe. I'm not sure if there's going to be more details of that program, but have a look and we'll keep an eye on it. In related news, Canonical, the company behind Ubuntu, has two releases. Oh, well, they're kind of one and the same, but connected coming out. And this is the latest version of Ubuntu and some other packages around it. So Ubuntu 23.10 will be Mantic Minotaur. And it has quite a cool looking desktop background with a kind of Minotaur's face in a maze, which is, it could have been uh, 
mazed by it at all. I'm not entirely sure what Mantic even means. But anyway, it's quite a cool uh, little logo. I played around with it a little bit on some of the betas. There's some updates to the App Center, a couple of GNOME updates, and a few other behind-the-scenes updates to make containerized workflows more secure and also and more accessible and tie up a few security issues around namespaces and things like that. Also, full disk encryption at a hardware level if you have hardware to support it, which is a little hard to test, and a lot of that hardware support will be rolling out over time, but really focusing on... It's always the interesting thing with something like Ubuntu because some people, especially myself, will encounter it through the desktop version, but then really a lot of these features tend to be aimed at server users... And apart from app discovery in the app center, which I dug around a little bit and it's very nice, but I'm not sure how many people use it because there's not many, they have this whole kind of rating and review system, but not many people really seem to use it. I found quite a lot of packages that they promote themselves as featured and they were not particularly up-to-date versions and things like Docker, for example, if you install the version from the center, it's not the correct version. These sorts of perennial Linux problems are not really resolved by the new app center, but it looks nice, that's for sure. Certainly for your everyday user, I think it's a good good starting point. It's also supported on new Raspberry Pi and a few other related, should we call them microsystems, and deeper integration with familiar administrative tools, which is possibly something that's important. I've worked in a couple of mixed environments where administrators want you to use certain packages and plugins to ensure compliance. And Linux is usually not allowed because there are no real compliance tools. Whether this will mean that this is now an availability remains to be seen. I guess it depends on what kind of contract that some of these companies are paid into and whether they're going to want to switch anytime soon, but it's a step in the right direction, I suppose, to allow Linux, Mac OS, Windows, mixed environments to all enjoy slash suffer a kind of administrative unity across that company. Another announcement from Canonical from a few weeks ago. Now, this is Charmed ML Flow. What is Charmed LM Flow? Charmed often is... Uh, Canonical's way of signifying that a, a package is kind of enterprise ready and supported, that kind of thing. I've featured a couple of interviews with some product managers from Canonical on some of their other projects, names that are escaping me now. I think Kubeflow might be one of them. I can't quite remember. I'm not entirely sure if this may have merged into MLflow. What is MLflow? It's part of Canonical's growing MLOps portfolio. What is MLOps, you may ask? MLOps is machine learning ops. DevOps has existed with us for some time. We're kind of used to this concept of codified workflows for defining, rolling out, rolling back, maintaining, reviewing developer releases, developer workflows, infrastructure, etc. Machine learning models have lagged behind a little bit. But with the recent proliferation and popularity of machine learning models, a lot of projects and options have been emerging to allow similar-ish workflows. And Charmed MLflow is, is one of those. I may give it a go in a hands-on video at some point in the future, but I'm not completely sure when. It'll be something I sort of need a fairly solid use case to test properly, kick the tires on. 
But uh, if you're looking for a solution and you're already kind of in the canonical ecosystem, if, if there is such a thing in the Luxe world, I guess there is, then take a look. And it can be used not only on servers, but also in on your local desktop for quick experimentation. Fully tested on Ubuntu, of course, Windows subsystem, and apparently other operating systems with multipass, which is Canonical's kind of... It's not really a... Kubernetes minikube kind of alternative, but it lets you run virtual machines on other operating systems. I have used it on Mac a few times. I'm never completely sure why I would use it versus something else, but it's it's a relatively tidy way of experimenting, especially with Ubuntu and other canonical related products. So it might be the best way to experiment if you are a Mac user, for example. So when I get around to it, it's probably the path I will follow. And if you want to find out more about it, Canonical are having an AI roadshow started a few weeks ago, but running until the 7th of December, all across the, well, I say all across the world, mostly America, Europe, and the Middle East, but you may find one near you at some point soon. So head on over to the Canonical website or just Type that into a search engine to find out more and find out more. Continuing with open source, this is another article from MIT Technology Review. What can I say? They've been knocking out the park recently. Will Douglas Heaven, the open source AI boom is built on big tech's handouts. How long will it last? I think you could possibly add this headline to the open source boom from the past few years was also built on big tech handouts, but I guess the cycle is much quicker in this case because we have seen such a big uptick in AI-based applications and services that rely on the, will step on the shoulders, stand on the shoulders of giants. That's the phrase I'm looking for. And many of those giants were research and models and frameworks and tools all built by larger companies that they then released. It's open source, Meta, OpenAI, and uh, and a few others, but they're the two main ones. And many companies are now making quite good money out of leveraging that. And you could, of course, argue that's the same with open source going back a while. But I think the, the boom in AI coincides with the bust in tech and SaaS and open source generally at the moment. So that cycle of companies questioning whether this is good business practice is um, is happening much quicker. And you're already seeing OpenAI starting to change its policies around what it releases. Meta is probably the next largest company that is still releasing uh, free and open source, but you wonder how much longer that will last. I guess it's also not really their business. They don't, it's like React and many other things that Meta has released. That is not how they make money. Whereas with OpenAI, it is. So they're effectively giving free tools to the competition. Meta doesn't really have that issue. Google is another company that we may see changes from in the future. And there's a couple of others in there, ones that surprise me actually, like like Dolly, which actually came from Databricks, who uh, have been around the open source world for a while, and then a few others from uh, more recent companies. But yeah, (laughs) with other changes in open source licensing and funding models over the past few months, I guess we'll see what happens with all this research and whether it continues to flow into other companies' coffers. I feel like this is something of a cliche, but we will see. 
on the subject of licensing changes and funding model changes. This has been something playing out over the last few weeks. I'm referring specifically to an article here on gamedeveloper.com by Brandon Sheffield. And actually this predates even more recent changes. This is the death of Unity, once heralded as the saviour of the video game industry. And they received a bit of a leg up recently with Apple announcing support for its Vision Pro with it, but then they really set the cat amongst the pigeons, or specifically, shall we say, their their CEO, John Riticello, really upsetting people quite a lot over the past few years, but especially in the past few weeks around how they changed their funding model. I won't go into too much detail, but to suffice it to say, it really stung a lot of uh, game studios, small and large. And I think I saw or heard some statistics around how some free-to-play games, for example, would end up losing money because of the way it works. Things like bundles, which you often see on Steam and Humble Bundle, wouldn't really work anymore because Unity would demand payments for each copy, quote-unquote, sold in this case. This has all turned around in the past day or so. I haven't really caught up. But uh, John Riticello is out and the previous CEO is back. And much like many other controversial statements that have really upset communities over the past couple of years, maybe they will reverse a lot of that. Will they value providing a business that people like over more business? Of course, it's an argument whether that would have been the case. But I guess that's what they assumed that would happen in the long run. And now everything is back to normal. Who knows? We'll see. I don't actually know the answer to that question yet, because as I'm recording, that is when things just changed. So it's yet another case of we will see. And most news is like that, isn't it, really? But especially this episode. Next, quite an interesting, uh, not really a deep dive, but a dive nonetheless by Adi Osmani on uh, Adobe's Medium about how they have brought Photoshop to the web. This has been happening a little bit over time. I think I've covered previous uh, somewhat related content on the subject about how Adobe have been using Wasm to take some of their C++ and C code from Photoshop into web. And uh, I think uh, a couple of us might, more than a couple of us have played around with various iterations of this over the recent months. And it works surprisingly well. And you're starting to see this actually kind of work both ways in Photoshop, more web elements in the desktop application and more sort of quote-unquote native app components in the web application. What's it all leading to? I really hope Adobe are not going to put everything on the web because that would be quite disappointing. But it does really open up that flow, which I really see the company pushing for at the moment between And you're seeing this with recent releases of Photoshop and other tools in the Creative Suite where you can create something in the desktop application, share it for collaboration or comment, and people in the desktop application or increasingly so on the web can can comment, can make tweaks maybe. I'm not really sure. I haven't really had the need to to go through the process yet. And then maybe you you see those comments in the desktop application, that kind of thing. Of course, the the concept is not new, but in an application, the complexity of some of Adobe's, it possibly is somewhat newer. And uh, in recent years, they also acquired Frame.io, which does this in the video, so in um, Premiere as well. And I think they're also allowing it now in Audition, although it doesn't 
it lacks some of the the features, of course, because there's no visual component. But it's interesting to see how that the Adobe is really rolling out a lot of these cross-platform connections between their products and how people work with them collaboratively, but not just their products. Like the, you know, using something on the web can also be used by someone who doesn't even have a Creative Cloud account or subscription. So, you know, sharing with clients and things like that. And I especially use Frame, for example, like that quite a lot to get feedback on edits I'm making for people or interviews, et cetera, et cetera, before releasing them. So it's interesting to see. And they go into a little bit of detail about how they are accomplishing some of this. In the related talking about sort of cross-platform uniformity, um, consistency, well, uh, this was the release of Sonoma on macOS and iOS 17, iPadOS 17, et cetera, et cetera. And this has been covered fairly extensively. I'm always a bit too late to do my own roundups when there's plenty of other people like uh, Six Colors, 512 Pixels, Mac Stories, et cetera, et cetera, who do much better jobs than I ever could. But I have actually been enjoying seeing how the various aspects, and I only see two of those through macOS and iPadOS, are starting to synchronize. You see these things like widgets and focus modes and mail accounts and all these sorts of things where... You know, there's always been this concept of Apple's walled garden, but sometimes that walled garden had a few holes in the wall, but it's getting really, really good. And I, I come from a time of using Apple and Mac products where their sync facilities and features were terrible. You would not trust them. And now to see a company that does it so seamlessly in some cases through iCloud and continuity and all of these various related features that it works really, really exceptionally well, actually, and sometimes surprising you. And Sonoma has been one of those releases that it's kind of headline grabbing features, not so sort of astounding, but the more you use it, the more you realize these little small things that are really building up as you use it, like the autocomplete in text fields. That's one of those things where initially it doesn't do very much and then slowly it starts to get better and better and I'm finding it very useful. And anything that is sort of part of the system without having to install other third-party tools is kind of nice and it obviously synchronizes to the iPad and et cetera, et cetera. Same with the widgets. I haven't really found those massively useful yet, but I may do. And just those kind of those little, it's one of those versions that seems to really feel like it improves your productivity as opposed to just giving you new things to mess around with. And there's a few problems here and there, of course. Mail plugins is one. I've lost access to GPG signing in mail. That's the main one. I also have an invoicing application I I have stopped working and I had to upgrade it. Kind of minor things like this, but generally it's quite a nice release that yeah, it's giving those quality of life productivity improvements and not these kind of big headline grabbing features. Although, as is always commented on with things with photos, it has a lot of new features and you wait eternally for the photos library to actually give you some of those features. Like I'm waiting for it to, it now recognizes pets. I'm waiting for it to tag all my cat photos and it still hasn't done it yet. And I don't know when it will and I can't manually ask it to. It just does it in its own sweet time. And then I will be able to find pictures of my cat, which is all I really need to do, of course. And finally, from rest of world, a great roundup of 40 companies that are beating the West. Some of these I'd heard of from all sorts of regions. 
you know, I've always tried my best to include startups and tech companies from around the world, but it's hard to find them sometimes, especially going to Eastern Europe a lot, which I guess is still the West. And in the coming weeks, I will have a lot of coverage from my trip to Ukraine and IT Arena from the, for the fourth time. But this post goes further into Africa, the Middle East, the edges of Asia, around some of these amazing startups that are huge and you've probably never heard of, especially the ones coming out of places like India. And it's really interesting to go through, and I may use it as a, as a jumping off point to find some people to interview over the coming months, because it's really nice to, to broaden that market outside of your westernized worldview. And that was my links for the week. A few sponsor notices coming up, but before that, I would like to say again, please, if you listen to the show or if you've been on the show, consider sharing this episode or reviewing the podcast wherever you happen to listen to it. That would be very appreciated at the moment as I try to build up the audience. And with that few words from our sponsors and then it's on to my interviews from OSS Summit with Max and Arpit. As always, the usual caveat to apply that it's going to be a little bit noisy in the background, but enjoy. I'm joined by Max. I'll just go with Max. We had a That's whole lengthy discussion about that. <laughs> Amongst many other things, uh, involved in the tags of a technical advisory group at the CNCF around environmental sustainability. Correct. Involved there. I'm sure it would be sort of Sort of lots of volunteers, basically. Isn't it? What, do you, yeah. what do you call this? Uh, so the official role would be a co-chair. We have we have three chairs in the tech, uh, which have more like the organizational administrative perspective on it, right? Thinking about the activities if they're going alongside with our vision and mission, and if they play also inside the the boundaries of the rules of the technical oversight committee. So there's some limited space, right? So we have a focus on cloud native. And uh, talking about sustainability and computers, you maybe will come to data centers and cooling, but it's a little bit outside of this boundary. And so we yeah. ensure like you move in this right boundary. So it's like a, I don't know if I want to say control instance, it's, it's less than that, right? It's more like an, the formal grouping of people who take care about a specific topic that is relevant within the Kubernetes space. So you have, for example, attack security which, for example, organizes the pen testing of some of the uh, open source tools. Or you have like, a, let's say, tech application delivery, which takes care about like how, how we define the delivery of an application towards Kubernetes. What are the methods for it? What are the best practices to it? And so they have different roles. They can be more technical. They can be also more like procedural, like tech contributor strategy which worry about like how we can keep the open source community engaged and motivated. In former times, because I mentioned it, they were called SIG, Special Interest Group. And I think uh, on the one hand side, it, it gives a actually better name, like a special interest group says like, they have a special interest obviously in some topic, right? But the tech's getting more and more roles to it. So we take care and, and help projects to grow, which fall maybe into our domain, right? So if you find projects which helps other end users in, I don't know, optimizing their schedule of an application to reduce their carbon footprint, for example, or improve their power and performance consumption, then this would be a project which we would kind of take care of, helping to find contributors, take a look that they're going to the right direction, that they follow somehow the, 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 the rules and the setup for an open source project under the CNCF. 
yeah. down. So it's actually kind of funny. The tech environmental sustainability was yeah, proposed by myself and a colleague of mine. So we wrote a whole proposal through it, actually as a work group, uh, because we said like, okay, tax may be too huge, maybe too big. You have this, this big, big, big thing. It, it sounds scary. Let's start as a work group and let's find out what we want to do and how we really can, can do it. And uh, so we, we practically proposed it. Um, there is no very concrete process around it, which can be sometimes a little bit difficult. So you need to find your way and what is it, what isn't it. And so the technical oversight committee, which is like the overall governance board for the technical perspective, reviewed it. We rewrite a little bit the proposal and then they practically vote on just build this workflow. Right? After several months, there was a decision like our workflow is maybe not the right way because Actually, under a TOC, Technical Oversight Committee, there should be only tax. And then within the tag, we will fund work groups for different topics. I can ask some leading questions because this is actually an area I have done a little bit digging into myself. I used, uh, last year, I worked for an observability company, mm -hmm. scalable nucleus type stuff. And I did a talk on uh, making applications, back end applications, more efficient. So yeah. I kind of actually did some digging into this. I think before Kepler became the thing that most people use, I was looking at the ThoughtWorks mm -hmm. projects. Cloud Carbon Footprint. Yeah, which yeah. is interesting because it's an extremely big, complicated application. We come to maybe you know, <laughs> the carbon or monitoring application. Yeah. You showed Kepler yesterday mm -hmm. as well. It's like it's not an easy topic. Yeah. Let's uh, come back to that one. Let's, on the focus of these days, of, yeah. um, why should we care? Um, so the thing is actually more like it's a, a legacy, a heritage, right? The way how we dealt in the past with container, or with servers, better to say. We are very, very bad in utilizing servers. Hypervisors were there to give the first promise and like, look, we have a very large machine. We will utilize it now for everything. But the truth is then you have just minor servers, smaller servers, which are still just a little bit used. So it sums up all the time in this direction. And also with Kubernetes, you can do a lot of stuff wrong. And this is a, the, the biggest problem behind it, that you maybe have a good intention and you maybe do not have enough time to understand it 100%. We often see a lot of people on the market, they oh, we use Kubernetes. But when you dig down, it's like really like the, the click button deployment. There is very less things happening around like how to well, schedule your applications better, how to deschedule your applications, how to reduce the size of your server, maybe using a different architecture, right? So the, the practices behind is just like some, some, some thinking about it. And you need to build an evidence between what is running on your server and how big is, for example, the footprint. It can be also cost, it can be also other uh, metrics. This doesn't matter so much. And how I can reduce this if I want to. Right? So it's, again, less the problem that there is a problem, but it's more about the heritage of how we deal still with computers in IT. There are for sure the big, very cool tech companies who are driving their infrastructure par excellence. I can't tell them anything about optimizing. They can tell me a lot, right? Because I have tons of use cases. But the truth is that the most enterprises on this planet do not have this tech, 100% tech-focused company, or, or not, not companies, but teams, which understands themselves as an IT 
digital native provider of a service. Most of them come from the background. I'm a service provider for IT or as IT as a service provider and deal with it like this. And this is a mental thing, a mindset in it. There's probably an argument as well saying that one of the promises of things like containers and Kubernetes is I think you had the you had the photo of the cow week yesterday. Yes. There would used to be this analogy of pets and cattles. Yeah. Yeah. And so it became this very disposable idea. Yeah. And I think this is the problem we've got now, whereas we got used to thinking of everything as being cheap and easy, just throw more resources at it. Yep. Without really thinking about repercussions of that. Yep. And ironically, as we're having the sustainability conversation, a lot of companies are now need to cut budgets as well. Yep. And also want to save money, which inadvertently can save energy too sometimes. Absolutely. So now people start to think about, oh actually there is a repercussion just throwing more resources at it. Yep. Um, so yeah, I think that was a question. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think now we've got to a point where we realize we need to be a bit more careful. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but you see, it's like this is just a repetitive pattern. This is what I mean with the heritage of the legacy yeah. which we take, right? We always just throw more in it. And, and it's for, for a good cause. But the, the truth is that many applications are not rewritten to be microservices. Most applications are just like introduced as a state, not most, these are bad words. But what we see in the large enterprises is that critical applications are just a stateful container, which sometimes utilize the whole server, which has a preheat time of 15, 20, 30 minutes. So this is a perspective where like you do something wrong, right? And this is what you, then people need to understand Kubernetes is maybe not the, the, the perfect choice for the problem. Right. Even so, I love Kubernetes and open source, but there are so many use cases where they're like, it doesn't make sense. It, you, you need to change before you can use this tech. Right? You don't change because you use the tech. Yeah. This is the difference. Yeah. You have to change first to adopt yeah. it, not adopt it and then change. So, in, in the um, context of the tag, mm-hmm. I think you said yesterday, I'm not consultant this year, an advisory group. What are the advisories you give to? something. Yeah. You mentioned a couple of passing, but what are some of the things you consider in your architecture in your infrastructure planning, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, mm-hmm. to help you? Mm-hmm. So this is a very interesting aspect because it's so fast moving and like um, I always say like if I would talk about this topic last year my answers yeah. would be completely different right? because it continuously changes in it. Um, and I think we have like maybe three or four perspectives on it. Um, the one hand side, it's always about first gain transparency, because if you're not aware of what you have, and what is your current situation, then you have a problem of acting on it. So this is always about this measure part, understanding where's your application running, how big is my carbon footprint. And if you know this already, you're far ahead than the most people on the market. But it's very, very important. So we can advise here or, or give a direction like how you can measure it, what you can see, what, what you can learn from it, how to interpret it, this number. The next step is looking onto your infrastructure. There are simple and easy changes, and there are very large changes which you can apply to. The thing is, we currently take a look of um, collecting best practices for it and saying like, okay, this change will have that cost. Right? Um, we're talking about optimized um, operating systems, for example, for the nodes, but also for the containers. We're looking into stuff like WebAssembly. Yeah. Uh, is it 
It is faster. Okay, it runs way more closer to 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 the core of the system. Okay, fine. But does the resource utilization during the runtime and execution of a of a process is it really more efficient, or doesn't the software just behave the same? So there are things which we which we look into and try to find out ourselves. Flows between data centers. I mean, CDN seems like kind of mm -hmm. fairly well established, mm -hmm. but a bit more. Uh, I think all the major cloud vendors now offer yeah. various regions. Yeah. Anyway. Um, unfortunately, they often cost a lot, which is a shame. And now, is there ever going to be like a, some mechanism inside Kubernetes configuration that you could actually kind of do it like Kubernetes makes But this, this these pods, this uh, service in the most. Uh, Yeah, no, I think we will get there. So the Green Software Foundation does a lot of, of yeah. activities in this direction. It's, it's very much centric around Azure because Microsoft is supporting it. So it, it always works best if you consider Azure as a, as a cloud hoster for, for this topic. doesn't mean not necessarily that the data center have the best footprint, but it will work best to shift your workloads. So there's the Carbonware SDK, yeah. which you can put in your own stuff, but also like the KEDA, the Kubernetes event-driven autoscaler, has implemented the CarbonWare SDK. So you can utilize this and think about to, to schedule that way, which is perfectly fine. Yeah. But you can also do a little bit like the, I would say the, the cheaper version of it, the, the quote unquote cheaper version, which would be like using Carpenter, more on the AWS side, where you can say like this kind of workload, I prefer to run in that, in that data center. Yeah. Yeah. It's then not that much CarbonWare, but again, it's like, let's have this interview in a year again, and maybe we'll tell you yeah. a different story, right? So because it's currently happening, and it's currently going on that this is implemented and, and being developed. But besides this, there's also like a lot of other things which you can consider. I had recently a discussion with an enterprise architect and said like, how much do you consider the location of your data center, the cycle of your application, like the workload cycle over the day of your application, and the weather forecast? Yeah, and it was like... Yeah. And he was like, well, I don't really consider. I was like, well, but you told me that sustainability is your top two priority. So why don't you consider? I was like, well, I never thought about that. This is related. I was like, yeah, well, but it is. right. And the problem is that this topic gets then a little bit too complicated because exactly you, you would need. But th that's a problem, right? You, need, you would need to understand for a region where your data center is, what is the energy mix which is available? And, and how does this energy mix is built up? Is it solar? Is it wind? Is it water? Is it nuclear gas whatsoever? So it's kind of complicated. It's not a... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Probably that one trumps the other. And that's why I lost this topic. I not just only lost this topic because of the, the sustainable effector itself, but because the, it is a challenge to, to find the right thing to, to put everything together that it makes sense, right? You have also a lot of considerations. There's actually two, two kind of funny things in it. The, the one's consideration is like, oh, move your, your compute time with the sun, for example. Like, literally follow the sun. Yeah. It's like, it is a good idea. I, I understand where it comes from, but does every country have solar panels? Maybe not. 
because it's expensive and it needs to have some, some incubation from the government that it's happening. So maybe this is not the case. Second, you can move your processing. Can you move your data? Yeah. yeah. Moving a gigabyte, fine. I don't discuss. Moving 100 gigabyte, let's give the calculator. Moving terabytes, or in some cases, when we take a look in, in companies who collect globally petabytes of data week over week, I can't move it. Anymore. Well, I can, but the process of moving will take already too much time. And it has a very big environmental footprint. There's a reason why networking is, is so costly. On the one hand side, because network itself is a very cost-intensive installation. Looking into data centers from cloud providers, it's, I think, was the, the most complex thing which they have in there, right? Because you, everything what you can configure in your software can happen or is already happening on the hardware side. So it's getting quite complicated. And the other effect is that it needs a lot of energy because you have so many components within the network to transfer data that, that it's also costly for this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So let's come back to the, 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 the monitoring itself. Mm -hmm. I mentioned briefly this this works cloud carbon footprint. Yep. We mentioned Kepler and you can also just do your own. There's, yeah. There's many ways. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to know because most of those those two especially are quite heavy. So in the grand scheme of I don't know, uh, website, for example, <laughs> the amount of traffic and overhead it has adding on this service just to monitor that probably is very minimal, really. In the yeah. But are there any efforts to make even more efficient monitoring? Like I could think of uh, doing things like EBPF. So EBPF, Kepler is based on EBPF. The, the thing is, what, what makes it so so heavy is that um, Kepler, Kepler has also machine learning part in itself. Uh, yeah, you also have Grafana for, for showing the dashboards, but Grafana is actually lightweight. You also run some Prometheus exporter and stuff like that. So the thing is, like, it's Kepler is like complicated and heavy because it has many, many parts in it. But it would be nice to have like the a light version of it or an agent version of it. Maybe it's something for the future. I don't know. The the Intel and, and Red Hat folks are, are actively contributing on this and, and keep developing it. I mean, the, the very special part about Kepler is that it's able to understand the workload in Kubernetes and matches the energy consumption which each of the workloads has. If you're looking into tools like Scofondre, which is a French, a French and, and not container-oriented version of Kepler, I think not running on EPPF, but maybe I'm also wrong, they focus on the virtual machines. Right? And they are way more lightweighted. But they cannot split then the information. So you would need to do the math by yourself and then you start scripting, building operator whatsoever. Then you also get the complexity on top of it. However, the thing is like some of the commercial tools already can do this quite well. I don't know, the, the for example, Dynatrace can, can get this information. They have a carbon impact tool. Yeah. It's yet very high level, but at least on like data center and server, it can show you already your, your footprint, yeah. for example. So there's a couple of options in it. It's interesting, actually, because let's say I spent two and a half years working for an observability company and got to know a lot of the people in that space. Mm -hmm. Even though those metrics are kind of there to extrapolate, really focus on it, I suppose, because it's not a business priority. It wasn't a business priority then. Yeah. Maybe now. And I suppose if it's Prometheus, into maybe a, a final question around this is 
we already see that potentially, especially in Europe, there may be regulation around software security supply chains, mm -hmm. things like that. You foresee a time where, let's take Europe as an example. We're in Europe, we're both European, sort of, um, probably the place we know best anyway. At least in the European Union, where they like to regulate things, there might be a kind of a, your application infrastructure has to, you know, like you see on consumer goods, the yeah. need to, yeah. to be, you know, like you go to a website and there's a, an imprint somewhere mm -hmm. that says, you know, this website is derated. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that there'll be mandates to do something like that, or is it too complicated? I don't know. No, I don't. Well, it will take some time. Yeah. It is yet complicated, but. I mean, the thing with the European rules is sometimes they are very dumb and very high level, but to fulfill them, it's a, it's a long road, right? Yeah. So on a paper, it's easy to fulfill it, but if it really, really wants to do it seriously, that's getting complicated. Especially because... <laughs> so, I mean, like they have changed the reporting guidelines for, for enterprises in Europe, not only for enterprises, but for large companies. And you have now your bank statements, but you also need to do non-financial statements. And one part of the reporting of non-financial statements, I think, I believe it's active from next year, January, is also an ESG report. And they're more or less precise on the ESG report. So they need to give their footprint overall. Right? So for the most companies, let's look into manufacturing, for example, which have large data centers by themselves. Well, they have a big electricity counter, right? And then they give a call to their favorite uh, energy provider and get the energy mix in, and most likely they will get something out of it. So on this level, there's already the first steps going on. And there's also this taxonomy uh, guideline or, or framework for, for Europe, which is a little bit more precise, which says like, okay, you need to explain how you have measured, what are the factors which is relevant for those numbers. So you, you need to understand it practically, right? It's like, like like the beautiful difference of like driving a car and understanding the car and what it's doing, being able to repair it by yourself. So, no, no, I, I live in Bavaria, but I I'm probably not from Bavaria. <laughs> it's, it's a big thing, right? I, I mean, but automotive overall in Germany is a very very big thing. And I mean, then there's also like in, in kind of ESG ISO certificate, let me lie one or two or something like that. Um, but it's also not very precise or specific in it. So there is already a lot of stuff going on in this direction. And uh, as far as I know, the Green Software Foundation is right now in the process of getting the software carbon intensity specification as an ISO standard. Yeah. Right? And I think this could be the next step. It maybe will not ask everyone to do it. I, I don't think so. But it can play all together. In Germany, we have this Blue Angel certificate yes. for, for also sustainability factors. And if you would like to implement this very, very precisely, then you need to dig down on your IT. Right. No, because yeah. people are, you're not, you're not forced to have it. Yeah. Right? If a, your consumers are interested that you have the certificate, yeah. then it's relevant. It's a water brand. I see it on a lot. And it comes from this, right? Yeah. Because it's actually about water pollution. And if you run your own data centers, you have a lot of water pollution too. It's not about only yeah. CO2. Yeah. So from this perspective, it plays a role, but it's extending its footprint because the thing is, it is very precise in asking you like what you have to show in display in order to get it. Right? And so I don't think that it will be a, a very good international standard because it's very much too Germanized and too bureaucratic and whatsoever. But it could be a good blueprint to, to build on and say like, okay, there's a lot of things which you have to understand and, and put together and need to document. You need to have process around and this and that and that would make a good foundation for, for an 
way larger yeah. uh, standard. Um, finding definitely more contributing people. And I think at the moment we have two, two big things on our plate. The one thing is to implement some sort of infrastructure helping the open source software within the CNCF landscape to measure their own software carbon intensity footprint yeah. and report this and make this visible. Because if you have this per project, then you can see between releases yeah. if the software is getting better or not. Yeah, yeah. So this could be helpful because um, sustainability is more about raising the awareness, not about like running around and telling people they're destroying the world. Right? This is a, the totally wrong thing. Like, I used to work in the environmental sector in Australia. And um, the other large thing is like we will have in October the um, Environmental Sustainability Week, Cloud Native Environmental Sustainability Week, which is like um, a full week of global meetups. Um, I have to take a look. I, I can tell you later. I'd be interested in hopefully attending, but unfortunately I have a future. <laughs> so when you when you go to our website sustainability.cncf.io also or .com or org I'm not sure <laughs> too too many domains <laughs> there, there we have our own tab for it because it's like 30 events happening in US North and South a lot in Europe and in Asia I think Africa and Australia don't have yet events but <laughs> but but these events is it's a very large uh, project because the, the reason is it's the Earth Week, right? And then it ends with the Earth Day, so that's why we we we're doing it. Yeah, some, somewhere I, I think around the 18th or something. Like, I'm not sure. And uh, yeah, this this is like a very big global effort because. We don't organize the, the meetups per country, but we have all the volunteers around the globe who are organizing it. And then you have similar questions like, what slides we should show, how we should structure it, does it cost something, who takes food, sponsorship, blah, blah, blah. So we, we try to give the foundation for it. And if you know somewhere, someone, we try to link the people up. But luckily enough, we have a lot of people within the community who come already from major brands and they are happy to sponsor a few hundred dollars. It's not that much to make the sustainability day happening. Yeah. I think the, the only thing is to, to make people more aware that it is happening and bring more people to the event itself. Yeah. Because otherwise, if you sit with five people, it's fantastic, you have, can have a nice conversation, but it feels maybe small and you would like to have like 10, 15 more people, you can do one. Yeah. Yeah. The, the base materials are provided by us, the rest is up to you. We see, we see all kinds of things, like uh, some people find talks, right, in Munich where a colleague of mine and myself is organizing it. We even have an end user uh, who's reporting from their side and their research and experience on this topic, which I love because um, yeah. that, that's always a very nice perspective and way better discussion ground than like theoretically whatever. Um, we see unconferences, right? Like people can throw their topics onto the table and everyone votes and then let's sit together and discuss. So there's plenty of opportunities to and get creative around it. Now I'm joined by Arpit Joshapura of the so Linux Foundation has many, many subgroups and you are, what's your title of which one? I sort of know the vague terms, but maybe we should get it from the, from the source. So Arpit Joshapura, I head up sub-foundations like networking, edge, energy. So uh, let me explain how Linux Foundation set up. We have the overall uh, nonprofit. And within that, 
we have multiple sub-foundations that either address a technology area like blockchain or uh, things like that, or address market-specific technologies, right? Whether it's energy, whether it's telecommunications, whether it's film industry, whether it's finance, banking, agriculture, etc. And these are all sub-foundations that are run separately to solve single most important problem, which is open source innovation. So me particularly, I head up uh, the LF Energy, uh, LF Networking, LF Edge, and LF Connectivity, among other sub-foundations. It's interesting because energy is a broad subject, but once you start to bring in those other uh, other topics like edge and uh, connectivity, it starts to maybe become a bit clearer more specifically what the LF Energy Group is is looking at and taking care of. There's been a, a lot of discussion at the moment around energy usage in computing generally, but I think the, the energy subgroup is mostly focusing on the more the infrastructure side, I think, or is it a bit broader than that? It is broader than that. But before we understand how the energy market is evolving, you've got to understand where it comes from, okay? So we're talking 100 plus years old industries, okay? Energy, telecommunications, banking, automotives. These are 100 plus euro industries. And they've always been used to deploying proprietary solutions, completely integrated hardware and software with extremely high dependencies on standards and regulations. That's the industries, right, that we are talking about. In the last 10 years, we've seen these industries move to accelerate innovation. And how did they do that? Using open source, okay? So telecommunications was the first to embark on this journey. It started off by disaggregation, right, meaning separating hardware and software, and then allowing open source to be that layer of software where the global community innovates and gets you services faster. So you can see how quickly we are getting all the mobile services or voice services or all the apps that come on to a telecommunications network. It's all because of open source innovation, right? Energy is right behind that industry. Yeah. It's about, I would say, three to five years behind, but it is very quickly catching up. And it is following the same path. And to answer your question, where the focuses. It is on the distribution and the generation. It is on transmission. It is on edge. And it's on all of the what we call end-to-end -end systems that need to talk to each other. And let me explain the analogy a little bit more in detail, if you may. The innovation needed to be speeded up and the networks wanted to be dynamic. Why? Because if you remember 10 years ago, we would just go to a website and consume content, right? So it was the traffic was predictable, everything was good. And then came smartphones, user-generated content. All of a sudden, content came from anybody, anywhere. And, and dynamically, the networks had to adjust. So there's a, there's a technology called orchestration, right? That, that was created to you know, literally orchestrate the network so that they can actually use these services. Okay. The exact same thing has happened in energy. 
we used to consume energy in our houses or in our businesses and it was a predictable demand and load on the grid all of a sudden you got alternative energy is getting created and sent to the grid the consumption patterns are varying because of you know charging and charging stations and and you know solar energy and wind energy so all of a sudden the entire infrastructure needs a mechanism to orchestrate and dynamically manage right that's what lf energy gives you there are about 25 projects i won't go into the details of all but you get the concept of yeah. why this has become so important so on a more general level you mentioned communications and i think one of the big advances there from a software perspective is things like software defined networks and so are they now software defined energy grids and power stations is that is that kind of where it's going or good analogy and the answer is yes we don't call it that but software defined networks are essentially saying you're separating hardware from software you're separating control plane from data plane meaning for for the traffic management you want to send the payload separately from where the payload goes right that's the general concept of sdn and in the the, the only difference is you know this is energy and this is like electricity versus the other ones are packets right but effectively the entire network of of energy generation distribution transmission the whole thing right is becoming software centric and you have to make it software centric to allow for these for these alternative ways of of creating generating and distributing network energy and using open source to do it is the only way to speed up the innovation can we just focus on the creating for a moment because i would imagine that's the one part that is still very analog and traditional i don't know how much how much kind of smarts can you inject in coal and hydroelectricity <laughs> you know when it's still it's it, in my mind it feels very analog still but like maybe it's smarter than i think it is and these images of dark power stations churning out smoke is maybe not as accurate as as it, as it once was i don't know <laughs> So from our perspective, LF Energy's perspective, I want to stay out of domains we don't influence. Okay, that's correct. So the means by which energy is created is not something we can influence. Okay, the connectivity, the distribution, the orchestration, the commonality of software that we influence. Right. So we do have projects that 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 have. common way of of you know sending you know data or utility information or generating credits or you know even charging for example like frameworks for general charging stations and things like that, that we influence we of course you know we have opinions about the ways we can generate but that's not the focus of lf energy right just to be very clear yeah So if 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 there's no no um interactivity on the 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 that end of the funnel how far down would it go as a consumer when i get my bills for example is there likely to be too much interaction with anything that the linux foundation has has played a part in there or is it sort of more in the middle between those two ends 
I think starting with like, so of course the billing is, is, is an application that the utilities like local utilities have, and that's not standardized, right? By any means, right? Whether in you're in Europe or US, uh, in fact, the entire utility market or the energy, you know, operator, grid operators and everybody is very localized yeah. as we know, right? And we don't influence how they run their applications. But the moment that hits the central point where they can share information, they can build what I call the plumbing layer of software, right? Common things. That starts impacting the way they build these systems, right? So, so we, you know, does, does LF Energy influence billing? Not directly, but indirectly it does, right? Because you you got you expose APIs, you expose yeah. credits, you expose you know a lot of these parameters back in. In a way that the telecommunications business ended up with a lot of the MVNs or MVVNs, whatever MVNs. they're called. Yeah. I'm guessing now I'm seeing. I live in Germany, which is fairly regulated from an energy sector, but there's a couple of equivalents now there that I yeah. think are piggybacking on the back of the bigger companies, but offer the sort of month-to-month -month flexible billing, this kind of thing. So I'm supposing that some of those efforts have allowed that kind of level for the consumer as well. Yeah, and I think more than the consumer also, right, you've got to look at the, the operators, the, the DSOs, the ISOs, right? They are the ones that actually benefit from the work we do. And they are actually participating in the community, right? So the way LF Energy works is we have, we host projects, right? So LF hosts these projects. There are more than 25 projects. A project is obviously a collection of hardware, software, APIs, documentation, everything. And it's an open source project. So we host projects and then we run the community, meaning, you know, we do the R&D operations, program management, et cetera. Then those projects produce code that code gets integrated, tested by the community, used by these utilities like an RTE or an Aliander or anybody in US, right? And then, and then if they want to make changes, they can actually submit code back in, right? As an, so that's our job, right? Which is grow the community and keep adding to these projects and keep adding deployments and users to the community to, to sort of get it going. And the, the group has recently had a couple of events, I think. Uh, there was one in Paris, and I think there was one in the US as well recently, I think. Prague. Prague. Oh, Prague, okay. <laughs> That's a lot closer than Paris. I should have gone to that one. <laughs> so what, what, are, what are some of the discussions and topics happening there? I know, there's, I, I know some of the, the subjects I've seen on the emails, et cetera, but what are some of the areas that people are most interested in in the, the projects that the, the group is hosting? So the, 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 there are three themes emerging, okay? The first theme is the general awareness of the rest of the world. So in energy, Europe, and I would say not energy, but in open source energy, Europe is leading the world in a good way and a bad way. Bad way because there's energy crisis here more than everywhere else in the world. But the good way is they are leading the open source foundations, right? Our chair of LF Energy is from RT, right? French, French utility. Now, given that, so the main, so the first main theme is how do you, how do you expand the scope of work 
and the global community beyond just the European-centric operators, okay, or utility providers. And so one of the things I'm doing is trying to get the Department of Energy in U.S., uh, getting all the grid operators. There's like 17 plus different yeah. entities we need to work with. They don't compete, which is great, but then they don't collaborate also all the time. So we have to get all of them on board. We've been talking to the China grid people to try and, and the crisis there is even worse. So they are very interested. So that's the first theme, right? Which is how do we expand globally? Because open source is all about global collaboration, right? There is no, it's not, it's not a area specific thing we do. So that, that's the first, first theme. The second is how do we go, grow our uh, projects, uh, which is again, infrastructure all the way to applications, right? If you look at the software stack, uh, and then if you look at, you know, the physical thing, you know, you got distribution, transmissions, uh, edge and things like that. So that is kind of our second big focus. What are the use cases and what are the areas that are important that we don't have software for? Right. And where are the our end users hurting the most? So there's, you know, and there are mechanisms like the TSC and the TAC within our community, which are technical steering committee, technical advisory council, which are basically a bunch of very smart people who figure out where we should be going, right? So that's the second. And then the third very interesting focus area is the interdependency and the collaboration across industries, right? So a lot of the utilities in US have bought a private 5G network for their control of the substations, right? So now you have telecom and energy working together to try and orchestrate one another, right? How do we get that dependency worked out? The other industry, the other area where there's cross collaboration is edge and IoT with the energy industry, right? So we have projects that cross the two, like there's a project called Fledge, which is hosted by our sister foundation called LF Edge, but it is, it is customized to implement in the energy environment as an edge project. Yeah. Okay, so, and, and then what does that mean? That means you are now providing frameworks for edge computing and IoT for your meters or for your transmission equipment or for your any of the, the constrained edge devices that are used in the energy subsystems. Yeah. Okay, so those are the top three, right? Like, you know, global expansion, project expansion, and then cross-vertical expansion. From your perspective, I mean, depending on the, the country you're in, there's been conversation for a while on topics like smart grid and smart metering and things like that. Do you have much interaction with those? And if so, do you think they're finally going to be useful to people? Or, I mean, it depends on the country. So... We So smart grids are not a new concept, right? But they are being extremely well-documented and people know what to do. And we are hosting projects like, you know, Power Grid and there are some smart other smart grid projects. You can look it up on the website that are actually solving that particular use case, right? In terms of, and, it, and it's not like one project is going to solve it all, right? Like how a smart grid works 
there are layers that you have to peel and then you know address some of these problems. Yeah. And let's sort of abstract into the uh, the Linux Foundation now is has so many things, so many things. Maybe that's just a statement we can make. But fundamentally, it was born out of a this aspect of a sort of hacker culture that became something much bigger and broader. There's always been this dream that uh, things like microgrids and feeding into networks and things of almost people having their own self-sustainability for power. Do you see that as anything possible in the using some of your projects in the in the nearish future for some people in some countries, depending on the regulation, of course? <laughs> okay, so I think if we take it broader, Linux Foundation has really stepped up its effort on the you know sustainability work. Right? Yeah. We just published multiple reports on sustainability, including the one from you know. UN's uh, response, right, on each of the gr uh, groups that we play in and play a part in. Um, and I think you, you, it's, it's, it's very eye-opening because there are multiple dimensions to it. You know, energy is one dimension. Um, agriculture is the other dimension. Climate is the other dimension. So we have, you know, OS Climate, LF Energy, LF Ag. All of the networking projects have um, um, an energy component to it, right? Like about three to five percent of global uh, energy consumptions is is part of the mobile connectivity, right? So that is significant if you even knock it off by one percent. So there's a green base station or a green, right? There's a lot of those things happening. Agriculture has the other vertical that that focuses on that. So. At the LF level, Linux Foundation level, while we have our roots in Linux, it started off at, we have grown in the last 20 years to expand beyond Linux into all of these markets. And a lot of these markets have influence into the overall sustainability goals, right? And the mission that we want to accomplish to go for a greener planet. And on that, I think the, the the energy group is looking more at the the distribution, the uh, the infrastructure of energy distribution. But there's some other foundations looking at other aspects of energy and sustainable computing generally. Like I think the Sustainable Web Foundation, the Green Energy Foundation, sustainable computing. Maybe sometimes you can't quite remember if they're one or the same. Do you have much overlap with any of those or is that you're, you're sort of dealing with the, the industry side enough to maybe not really step into their territory so much? I think there are, let's put it this way, there are a lot of foundations looking globally at sustainability. My personal opinion is there will never be enough. Okay. And I would encourage everybody to if you want to focus and help us, go for it. It doesn't have to be LF. It can be outside the LF. There is probably the, the area and the dimension is so vast that I hardly see any overlaps. Okay. You know, for, for example, everybody, every one of us plays a part in it, right? Like from the recycling industry, which we don't influence, to the ocean and mining, to the generation, right? There are all these that have a sustainability angle. All the IT firms, all of the all of the top ten up top ten thousand tech companies, they have a sustainability goal that they have to meet, and then all the verticals have a goal, right? And one of them happens to be energy, 
right? One of them happens to be agriculture. One of them happens to be telecom. And we just want to make sure that all of these markets have common, like at the end of the day, my thinking is very simple, right? If you repeat areas of software, if you repeat meaning, if you redo areas of software that are non-differentiated again and again, you're wasting people's time, energy, the compute cycles to run the load. You know, basically you're just, you know, doing work for no reason. So that's what LF is so good about, right? Which is the plumbing layer. Common dif non-differentiated software should be done once globally by everybody in all industries and shared. And that itself is a great goal for sustainability, right? Yeah. There's a final question. I mean, you've touched upon it yourself a little bit so far, but I think we know that energy, sustainability of energy in every way that means is going to be big topics in the next, well, foreseeable future. So six months may be too short to, to, to say, but um, what do you think will be some of the big developments um, or on the roadmap effectively for the group in the next six months to a year based around those issues that I think are going to be coming much more apparent? And we talk, you talked about Europe. I think uh, it tends to sometimes be ahead in topics like this because of it's just desire to create more regulation than the US maybe, which is you know good and bad. But what do you see as some of the developments you'll be working on in the next six months or so that are, I mean, probably fairly important, I guess. <laughs> so as I said, we're still in the early phase yeah. of, of the open sourceification of energy yeah. sector. Okay. And I call it open sourceification because it's, it's kind of a unique word yeah. where we are using open source technologies and common shared practices to speed up innovation, right? So, so that's kind of what we are going to do now. Uh, so that's continuing. I think what I'm starting to see is the U.S. is stepping up its game big time, yeah. especially the U.S. Department of Energy and, you know, a lot of associated, you know, ARPA-E and there are projects, right? So we have been, we have been talking about that and they are stepping up they're, they're partnering with the Linux Foundation to, you know, make everything open, right? Because energy and the grid is a critical infrastructure. And critical infrastructure needs to be secure. And the only way to secure, secure all of the critical infrastructure is using open source code. Right. So, so that's why I'm saying the most important thing next is focus on security and focus on open source security because uh, there are some best practices. So our sister foundation, OpenSSF, has pro provided guidelines on what does secure open source mean. And LF Energy is following all of those very effectively. So that's kind of the, the big uh, you know, area, which is like two big areas, right? Continue with, with the global expansion and awareness that this is important for the future of, of the planet. Second, security. And making sure that as we move to open source, the grids are secure, the software is secure, and the, 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 the regulatory and the government agencies are aware and they know what the right way to do it is. Now, I'm not arguing for more regulations or less, okay? That's kind of a country-specific thing. But the, 
but the regional strategies are slightly different, right? Europe does tend to kind of try and regulate more. U.S. tends to deregulate, but more importantly, they align energies to, uh, you know, uh, no pun intended, but they align their energy to open up the system and the competition, but using common frameworks like LF's framework, right? So they have a different strategy than, than just keeping, keeping on regulate, uh, regulating the industry. And then uh, we're starting to see the third big thing is, you know, India and China will, will step up their game on, on sustainability. We're already in early talks with both of them in terms of how we can help. So those are the big things that we see in the next one year, two years. India and China sounds like the big yeah, yeah, yeah. Two of the biggest countries in the world. Yeah, and there's a lot going on, and you know we're 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 in active dialogue. So, okay. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And those are my interviews from Open Source Summit with Max and Arpit talking all things open source, Linux Foundation, CNCF, energy and sustainability especially with the activities from the sustainability tag. Keep an eye out on their website, which I will include in the show notes once I figure out what it is myself, (laughs) for their activities coming up over the next few weeks, which is why I wanted to get those out soon. I have a few more interviews coming up around similar subjects as well, actually. It's something I've been digging into quite a lot. Amongst all that, I have been in hyper catch-up mode after being away for several weeks. Lots and lots of interviews in the, not in the can, because I haven't done anything with them yet, but to be put in the can. I don't know if that's the right word, but it'll do. So not massive amount from me right now. I have a few things that are nearly done. I think the only real thing was there was a blog post version of my digitizing music PDFs, which is up on Medium now. I did a little bit of a channel intro video on YouTube, but uh, you probably don't really need to to see that. <laughs> and, uh, I have an update to a Run Me video, which I covered a few months back, coming soon. And a few shorts I'm going to be putting out soon as well. I think those are the main things for now. I've been doing a lot of updates to my website, so you can find uh, various bits of content that I haven't told anyone about appearing on there over the next few weeks. And I think I'll leave it there. I think my only calls to action, apart from heading over to wherever you are listening to review, would be also um, head on over to christianchiller.com slash support. I've put a very uh, work in progress page there of all the ways you can also support what I do through various kind of donations and subscriptions at different levels. I'm trying to provide a very um, affordable option for everybody. I know a lot of creators at the moment are talking about the price of a coffee. It was like seven, eight, nine dollars. I don't know where people get their coffee from. It doesn't cost that much in Berlin. But I just want to try and provide options for as much as you can, recurring or one-offs. Everything is helpful to keep things going. And I'm sort of soft launching a few programs there that you can take a look at. Things like Patreon, Kofi, Buy Me A Coffee, etc., etc. They're all on there and I haven't done a tremendous amount with them yet, but they are there. And it will also bring you into the Discord server, which... I uh, always mention, but that's starting to sort of take shape as well. I'll be back probably in the next week or so with many more interviews from Open Source Summit plus other things. But in the meantime, thank you very much for joining me and take care, everybody.
I hope you enjoyed the show. Find out more about me at chrischinchilla.com where you can find show notes, sign up for my newsletter and find all of my writing, games, work and video links. There's also details on how to get in touch with me. And if you want to get even closer to what I do, join my Discord server for behind the scenes discussions and helping me produce my shows and work. <laughs>